Thank you, Dan. It's a good word you brought about all things are possible with God. Excellent. Uh, well, we're going to continue to hear from the Lord from his word. So if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn in it to Romans chapter 11. And our passage is going to be verses 25 to 32. So we're coming to the end of uh, a three chapter long discussion um, about God's relationship with the people of Israel now that Jesus came, um, was crucified, died, and rose again. Uh, that's something very much on Paul's heart. He started in chapter 9 with the question about whether or not God's promises to save his people had failed since so few Jews actually received Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. So one might think that God rejected Israel, that he was done with them, that their part in the story is over, and that now the story has moved on to the rest of the world, to all the other nations, and somehow Israel has been left behind in the dust. Uh, well, Paul will not allow us to think that about Israel or about God. Um, he explained for three chapters that God has not failed. Uh, his word hasn't failed and that he has not rejected his people. There is a remnant chosen by grace. Um, and there is more to their story because God isn't finished with Israel. So today we're going to learn how their story ends and what it has to do with us. So let's read verses 25 to 32 to find out what it is and then ask the Lord to give us understanding. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God and now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so also they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, this text, this passage has been bandied about over the centuries. What does it all mean? What is it that all Israel is saved? And what does it have to do with us, uh, non-Jews, Gentiles, here in Colorado and North America in 2020? So we ask you to impress it on us. Again, show us your glory. Show us the greatness of salvation. Show us the great plan that you have for saving your people from every tribe and tongue and people. And just let us leave this meeting today more filled up and expectant of your goodness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the passage that we read has two repeated words towards the end that summarize the story of salvation for every believer whether or not that's from a Jewish or a non-Jewish heritage. 
The two words are disobedient and mercy. Of the Gentiles, Paul says, you were at one time disobedient to God. Of the Jews, he says, they too have now been disobedient. So we all share in disobedience to God. But in Jesus Christ, the final word for both Jews and Gentiles is not disobedient, but mercy. Of the believing Gentiles, he says, you have now received mercy. Of the believing Jews, he says, they also may now receive mercy. That is the church's salvation in two words. The disobedient receive mercy. And that comes to us through Jesus Christ. The really surprising thing about it all is that God actually uses the disobedience to bring about the mercy. That's what we're going to see again this morning as we think through the text. What we're going to do this morning is trace the surprising path of the church's salvation as Paul lays it out. And he adds the final chapter. He makes plain his goal for why he's going to do this right up front, which is to make us humble and to make us grateful for God's mercy. He says at the beginning, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. So he's going to unpack a mystery for us, the mystery of God saving his people. And, and what he wants us to do is not be wise in our own sight, that after we hear what he has to say, we should be thinking, wow, I should, I should, I should be humble and grateful. Um, this wasn't my doing. I never would have thought of this. That's what he wants from us this morning. That's our, that's our response. So let's see what there is to be humble about. My points are simple. I'm going to start with how we got to where we are now. Um, the second is what is going to happen in the future. And then finally, we'll just conclude with the realization that salvation is all because of God's mercy. So let's start with how we got to where we are now. Uh, let's hear verse 25 again. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Here comes the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That summarizes what Paul's already said in the rest of chapter 11. The point he's been making is that uh, Gentile or non-Jewish believers in Christ, we owe our forgiveness for sin and eternal life to the hardening of Israel against Jesus. Their rejection of Jesus served to bring salvation to the Gentiles until the fullness of them comes in, until those people from every nation are saved. And it sounds counterintuitive, but that's what happened. If Israel hadn't rejected Jesus as their Messiah, they wouldn't have handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. And without the crucifixion, of the Son of God, there could be no salvation for anyone, Jew or Gentile, because Jesus atoned for sin on the cross. It's what he came into this world to do. It was to bear the blame and the punishment for our sins in our place. Without that, no one can be reconciled to God, and we must bear the penalty for our sin 
in ourselves. So in the mysterious plan of God, the hardening of Israel against Jesus became the means of salvation for the whole world, including the Gentiles. But not only that, Israel's hardening against Jesus actually accelerated the preaching of the gospel into the Gentile world because it forced the early church to realize that Jesus didn't just come for Israel, but for everyone. As non-Jews believed in Jesus as the Savior, the church, which began in an entirely Jewish context at the beginning, they came to realize that Jesus is the Savior for the nations, and that you don't need to become a Jew in order to be saved. So the hardening of Israel actually served to send out the disciples into the world and accelerate the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. A partial hardening is responsible for all of that. Partial hardening came upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and that's an ongoing process that's still happening today. That's how Paul says we got to where we are. There are Jewish believers because the hardening is only partial. There is a remnant chosen by grace but in the main, the church today exists as mainly Gentiles from all sorts of places who are coming to Christ around the world. But Paul says that's not the end of the story. Um, he goes on to tell us what's going to happen in the future, particularly what's going to happen in the future for Israel as a people. So let's read the end of 25 and the beginning of 26. And then we'll uh, see what that says. And before we do that, I have to plug in my computer because it's about to die. Hang on. Okay, saved. Verse 25, 26. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now that statement that all Israel will be saved is tricky to understand, to say the least. There are a lot of ideas about what that means, and depending on what it means, it takes you into all sorts of different ideas about what's going to happen in the future for Israel and for the church. <clears throat> um, it's clearly a statement about Israel's future. They will be saved, but what exactly does it mean that all Israel will be saved. Does it mean, for example, that God is going to save all of the Jews someday? Or does all Israel mean all of spiritual Israel, which is all the saved Jews and Gentiles, the elect from all nations? Or does it mean something else? I'm gonna do my best to explain it. But first, let me say why this question even matters to us who are not from Israel. So here's an analogy. Suppose you're one of five kids in a family and you aren't the oldest in that family. And that's exactly my situation. I'm number four out of five kids. Um, and when you're one of the younger siblings, you notice how your dad treats the oldest because that's something of a prediction of how it's gonna go with you when you get to your oldest sibling's age. Uh, mentally, you check off, oh, I see, when I become a teenager, that's how it's going to go uh, between me and dad. Well, God called Israel his firstborn son when he delivered them out of Egypt. 
we non-Israelite Gentile believers came into the family later as the second and the third and the fourth born. So how God treats Israel as the firstborn is a prediction of how he's going to treat us, the Gentile church who came later. So it matters how Israel's story ends because it tells us about the character of our Heavenly Father and what we can expect from him as the church. And we can expect good things from God, as we're going to see. So what did Paul mean by all Israel will be saved? Well, we can definitely rule out some things that it doesn't mean, and I think we can confidently narrow it down to what it does mean. So let's start by noticing one thing from the previous verses, which is that Paul seemed to expect that many more Jews would be saved than was his experience, um, and also I think ours. Because he said things like this, back in verse 12, he said, if their failure, and he means the Jews, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So that sounds like he's expecting a full inclusion of Israelites into salvation. In verse 15, he said, if their rejection, if the Jews' rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So it sounds like Paul's expecting that God is going to accept Israel, and he's going to give them life from the dead. He's going to save them. And then verse 24, he said, if you, and he's speaking to Gentiles, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. So the cultivated olive tree being the, the tree whose nourishing root is Christ. That's the true spiritual Israel. If you've been grafted in, how much more will these, the natural branches, speaking of ethnic Israel, Jews, be grafted into their own olive tree? So that sounds like Paul expects God to graft more Israelites into the tree which is those who are saved by Christ. So when we read all that, all that previous stuff, and then we read all Israel will be saved, that seems to confirm that Paul thinks many more Jews will be saved because it's Jews he has been talking about all this time in contrast to Gentiles. It's people from ethnic Israel that he expects to be fully included, given life from the dead, and grafted into their own olive tree. That's why all Israel most naturally refers to ethnic Israel, the Jews, not to spiritual Israel, which is all who are saved, both Jews and Gentiles. It's the Jews that Paul has the burden to save and whom he expects many will be. But that still leaves us with big questions. Three big questions, actually. How will they be saved? How many will be saved? How many is all? And also, when? When will they be saved? That's where the debate is. Uh, and that's where, depending on your answers, you end up with very different ideas about the future for Israel and the church. So let's, let's answer those questions in order. First question, how? How will all Israel be saved? 
Well, some take this to mean that unbelieving Jews will be saved just because they're the people of Israel and God made a covenant with them. Um, for example, in Jeremiah 24, 7, they shall be my people and I will be their God. So the thinking there is that they're God's chosen people, so they're going to be saved even if they don't believe in Christ. That is not true. Because in the rest of Romans, Paul has labored to show that no one has forgiveness of sin without faith in Jesus Christ. You must believe in Jesus to be saved. That is the gospel. That is true also for the Jews. Because in verses 20 and 21, Paul says that unbelieving Jews are branches that were broken off the tree because of their unbelief. And God did not spare them. They're not saved, Paul says. But verse 23 says, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. <clears throat> you must believe to be grafted into the tree that is Jesus. You must believe in him. That's how you get saved. There is no plan B for salvation. No, there's only a plan A, which is to be counted righteous in Christ. That's been Paul's message relentlessly throughout this letter. And that is how we understand it. That's how Jesus understood it. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's always been the truth. So you don't get into heaven. You don't get saved. You don't get life from the dead by any other means than believing in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're part of ethnic Israel or not. You still must believe to be saved. So that answers the how question of all Israel being saved. Now let's answer the how many question. How many of Israel is all Israel? Well, it almost certainly does not mean every Jewish person without exception. In chapter 9, Paul was in anguish over the fact that most of his fellow Israelite, Israelites were not saved. Because he said, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. His pain is that he knows most of them do not believe and will be punished. They will be judged. They weren't being saved in his time. They aren't all being saved in our time. And we don't have good grounds to think they will all be saved in the future because Jesus said the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and few are those who find it. It's always been the minority, not the majority, that gets saved. The fullness of the Gentiles coming in doesn't mean that all Gentiles will come in. It means that there is a predestined number of them that will finally be reached. And so also, it is unlikely that the full inclusion of the Jews means that all the Jews will be saved without exception at some point in time. It will be all the Jews who are the elect. Now, how many is that? Well, I think we can say it this way. It is enough Jews who come to faith in Jesus that it's clear God has kept his promises to save Israel. I'll say that again. It's enough Jews who come to faith in Jesus that it's clear that God has kept his promises to save Israel. 
I like the way John Murray put it in his commentary. He said, the salvation of Israel must be on a scale that is commensurate with their trespass in the opposite direction. In other words, it has to be enough Jews who are saved that it's clear that the partial hardening has been removed and that Israel as a people has returned to their God and received Jesus as their Messiah. That they are, again, his people and God is their God through Jesus Christ, their Savior. You see, what's on the line with the future salvation of Israel is really God's character. He selected this nation out of all the nations as a people on whom his favor would rest, a people that he would bless and make a blessing to the nations. So if in the end they are rejected as a people, it calls into question God's faithfulness to them and to his promises. And if that's in question, it calls into question his faithfulness to you, his promises to you. As Paul's, and Paul's contention is that in the end, we will all know that we have a God who keeps his promises to save. What he does with the firstborn, Israel, he will also do with the younger siblings, which is the Gentiles, to go back to that analogy. And I think this understanding is supported by the two things that follow as evidence. One is the promise in verses 26 and 27, and the other one is God's commitment in verses 28 and 29. The promise in verse 26 and 27 is a quote from Isaiah 59, 20 and 21, filled in with some other passages. And the promise is this, it says, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Jacob is Israel, the nation. And God promised Israel at the time of Isaiah that he would take away their sins as a people. So as long as the partial hardening is in place, it doesn't look like God has fulfilled that promise. But there will be a time when it is clear that he has kept that promise. It will be when he actually banishes ungodliness from Jacob and when he takes away their sins as a people by causing them to turn to Christ as a nation. And then there's the, the irrevocable nature of God's commitment in verses 28 and 29, his commitment to Israel. Paul acknowledges that Presently, the Jews are enemies, he says, as regards the gospel. That is, they don't, they don't accept Jesus. Um, they don't want to hear the gospel. They don't want to be evangelized. But that doesn't mean they aren't still loved by God. As regards election, Paul says, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God has chosen them, chosen to put his favor upon them. So despite their rejection of God, he is still committed to Israel as a people. Even though they rejected him over and over and over again in the Old Testament, he refused to blot them out. He kept rescuing them out of Egypt, out of Babylon, and now Paul would add, out of the world. Because as verse 29 says, 
the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, that is, the gifts and the calling of God on Israel, all Israel will be saved, meaning enough of them will turn to Christ that it will be clear that God has kept his covenant to take away their sins and to banish ungodliness. That still leaves the question of when. So we know how he'll save them. It's through belief in Jesus. We know how many. It's, it's enough that we can say, yes, God has saved his people whom he called. But when is that going to happen? When will all of Israel be saved? And I'll just mention two main schools of thought on that. One is that it's an ongoing process that happens concurrently with the fullness of the Gentiles coming in over the centuries. As Jews are made jealous of the salvation of the Gentiles, many will put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. So it's ongoing, and when the full number of the Gentile believers is reached, then at the same time the full number of the believing Jews will be reached. So that's one option, that it's ongoing over the centuries. The other option is that all Israel, come, they, they are saved after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, meaning a mass conversion of Jews to Christ in the future. And I have to say I lean toward that option for a couple reasons. The natural flow of thought in 25 and 26 seems to be that once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then the partial hardening of Israel will be removed. And the world will see Israelites getting full inclusion life from the dead, and being grafted into their own olive root. To me, that seems like the natural way the world can know that Jesus has banished ungodliness from Jacob and taken away their sins. When they become a people that repents together of their rejection of Jesus and en masse come to faith in Christ. So that seems like a logical flow to me but I guess we won't really know for sure until the end of the story. But whatever we know, it's, it's going to be great. And God is going to keep his promise to Israel as he will keep his promises to us, Gentiles. He's also banishing ungodliness from us. And he's also taking away our sins. That is, as many as put their faith in Jesus. And that's the point I want to close on is the basis of our salvation. Um, the last point is that salvation is all because of God's mercy. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, it comes down to mercy. It doesn't come down to your heritage. It doesn't come down to what people you came from. It is all mercy. That's what we're left with in verses 30 to 32. I mentioned at the start there's two important words in these verses, disobedient and mercy. Disobedience describes everyone. Mercy describes those who are saved, whether Jew or Gentile. He says in 30 and 31, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. 
You keep hearing disobedience, mercy, going back and forth. This is a recap of the swing between Israel and the Gentiles, and then back again. This swing, this path of salvation that starts out with the disobedient Jews, it reaches the disobedient Gentiles, and it comes back to the disobedient Jews again. That's what Paul's rehearsing here again and recapping it. And so just to go back to his logical flow, we non-Jewish believers in Christ were at one time disobedient to God. That's where that's the starting point. We needed to be saved. And we were, he says, we received mercy. That is, God determined not to punish us for our disobedience, but rather he chose to set his love on us and give us eternal life through Jesus. And that is what mercy is. You deserve punishment for crimes committed, but the judge doesn't punish you. And the only way that he can do that and still be a just judge since we have actually been disobedient to God, the only way he can do that is if we have someone who can legally and fully take our punishment for us. And that someone is Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's Romans 3.25. Jesus shed blood, propitiated it, it removed God's wrath from us so that the punishment could be served on Jesus and we could go unpunished. That's mercy. And Paul says, you've received that, you Gentiles, but that wouldn't have happened to you unless Israel had also first been disobedient. It was because of their disobedience that we have received mercy. Otherwise, Jesus doesn't get crucified. There's no atonement and there's no salvation. So it starts that way with the Jews. So disobedience leads to our mercy. But Paul reminds us God also intends to save disobedient Israel. He intends to have mercy on them. Enough of them that it's clear that he kept his promises to take away their sins. Um, and so how is he going to do that? It's by making J the Jews jealous of the salvation that the disobedient Gentiles are receiving through Christ. It's when they see disobedient, sinful people like us finding the Savior, the one they were waiting for. Paul says that's going to make a lot of them savingly jealous. And they're going to come to faith. They're going to receive mercy also. Your disobedience is part of their salvation. And that's what the last sentence, verse 32, sums up. This, this back and forth between the two. How we, we end up having saved Jews and saved Gentiles. He sums it up this way. He says, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Consigned. What does that mean? You've heard of a consignment shop, right? It's where people bring their stuff and somebody else sells it. They hand it over to a shop to sell it. Consigned means you deliver into the custody of something or someone. And Paul says that describes everyone apart from Christ. We are all consigned or delivered into the custody of our disobedience. We're hardened by our own hearts 
And God also hardens us until such a time as God removes the hardening. And the timing of his removal is when it accomplishes his higher goal, which is to have mercy on all. There was a time where Israel needed to be hardened so that we could have a savior. There's a time that we needed to be hardened and, we, and this is our own hardening, too. This isn't just God moving in. It's our hardening. But there's a time when we needed to be also disobedient so that when we are saved, the Jews will be jealous of it. There's a, hard, there's a purpose in the hardening in both cases, but the purpose isn't ultimately just hardening. It's to lead to something better, something that is near to God's heart, which is mercy. All of that is according to the sovereign working of our God, whose whole goal in sending Jesus into the world was that we could have mercy. Mercy for Jews, mercy for Gentiles. And so he says he consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. All doesn't mean every single person in the world universally. This is not universal salvation that he's talking about. He's saying all who call on the Lord Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, that's whom the mercy is for. Otherwise, this passage would, would totally nullify, this, this verse would totally nullify the rest of the gospel. If it all ends with universal salvation, then why have we spent 11 chapters trying to convince us that we need Jesus? <laughs> in order to be saved. No, there's no universal salvation just for being a human being. The climax of 1 through 11 is that all people of all nations are bound in their disobedience, but God is merciful, and he will save some from Jew and Gentile through Jesus Christ. His goal is mercy for the elect. So it all ends on the mercy of God. That's the fundamental reason anyone is saved. And that's why Paul can't write any more of his letter without breaking into praise in verse 33, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He just has to pause and praise God for mercy and the surprising way in which it comes to us by a crucified man and even through disobedience of people. Who would have ever thought of something like that except our God? And so we'll spend next Sunday on that praise from verses 33 to the end because it's too good to just skip over too quickly. So let me just close with this. If we come away from chapters 9 through 11, and particularly chapter 11, more wrapped up in the theological debate of all the uncertain things than we are in awe of God's mercy, then we've missed the point. Paul's reason for writing this was that we would not be wise in our own eyes, that we would not think, I've got it all figured out. And let me tell you how it should be and have these debates and arguments over it. That, that, if that's where we end up, we've missed it. The point is we've, we've received mercy. We, we were disobedient. We still are. 
and yet God is willing to pass over it because he, he put all the judgment on his son in our place. So the goal here is not to get bogged down in what we don't know for sure, but to celebrate what we know for sure, which is the truth that's summarized in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. It's all mercy. So let's be humble and let's be grateful that God is merciful to disobedient people like us. We who trust in Jesus have received mercy, whether Jew or Gentile, but nobody deserves it. So let's pray. Lord, you're you're beyond us. Your ways are inscrutable. That we, we haven't solved everything in this passage. We never will. But there are things that you have made clear. In Jesus, the disobedient receive mercy. We do not receive the punishment we deserve. Instead, we get your love. We get your your banishing of ungodliness from us. We're going to be made pure and holy forever. We get our sins taken away. We get righteousness accredited to us. We get your favor, your inclusion. And so, Lord, thank you for these things. And I pray that your people would feel your love today and hope for the future because it is good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.